0: Open God's holy word to the book of Jonah, chapter 1. Our focus this morning will be on verses 4 through 16. I'll be reading chapter 1. The word of Yahweh came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of Yahweh. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of Yahweh. But Yahweh hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, So that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew and I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of Yahweh because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to Yahweh, Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared Yahweh exceedingly. And they offered, up, they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows. And Yahweh appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, have mercy on we sinners who deserve nothing more than the tempest of your wrath to be hurled down upon us. But instead, in Christ we ask that you would send your spirit to convict and to renew us in the image of Christ. In his strong name we pray, amen. When dealing with Yahweh, whatever you do, don't run. (laughs) Additionally, it's helpful to know you're always dealing with Yahweh. Because He's omnipresent, when you run from Him, you cannot but run into Him. And you will always find that the side of God you run into is far worse than the side that you're running from. Do not flee Yahweh who can hurl, verse 4, great winds. We think it's incredible whenever, whenever a pitcher can throw a 100 plus mile per hour fastball. And it is. But we can get our hands on that. And we can begin to approach it in some measure. God grips what we cannot, the wind, and hurls it such that the seas foam. Man needs a bulky blower with an external power source to send bits of dust and grass off of his driveway. God Hurls the wind and he hurls it with laser sharp precision, needing nothing, simply willing it. Know this, he does not simply watch the storm. And it's a euphemism to say that he allows the storm. No, he hurls the wind. The psalmist sings, He commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. Yahweh is the hurler of great winds and the lifter of waves. Weather patterns are not randomized. God didn't program an algorithm into the laws of nature and then let it run on its own. Mishap happen where they will. He did not design an automated smart smart earth. He does everything, and he does everything manually. He does everything, and he does everything manually. He doesn't pitch wild. He can throw full force straight down the pipe every time without tiring. He can smack a giant between the eyes with a stone, and he can rock this ship with the wind. This storm smacks the glove exactly where he wanted it to go, rocking this little boat headed to Tarshish. If you're so foolish as to think that you can flee God, and we all are, if you're so foolish as to flee God, don't think things are well just because you make it 50 miles down the road. God might just want to demonstrate how far and how hard he can throw. He hurls hurls comets across the cosmos. You cannot make it a safe distance away. He can throw without losing velocity because for God, every pitch is a short pitch. He can throw so that Whatever he throws actually gains velocity because he's there pitching it along every point of its trajectory. And the scariest thing about running from such a God is just how far he might let you run. Do not presume that he will hurl the wind and lift the waves to bring you back into obedience. He might just let you sail off the edge of the world and into hell below. You might be in Israel, but not of Israel. You might have grown up in the church, but you're a weed growing up in the church to be plucked and thrown into the fire. Either way, the point is this. Know that if you are his, he will exert all his power to keep you. So don't run. Either way, don't run. Now, catching Yahweh's wind, these sailors are, verse 5, afraid. No catcher wants to receive God's heat. Every sailor wants to catch the wind, but not when God is throwing hot. They're afraid. And these mariners are as ignorant as they are afraid, verse 5. Each cried out to his God. In Romans 1, 18 through 21, we see that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, and that men suppress this truth. But because creation is constantly testifying to his power, man has to find a way to to suppress this, but yet he, he can't but acknowledge it. So he worships the creation, Romans 1 tells us, rather than the creator, constructing his own God. This boat is analogous to our current culture. Tragedy hits, and each cries out to his own God. And just as in this boat, all those cries prove ineffectual. And the problem is that our gods are no gods. Our wealth, our status, whatever kind of uh, fairy in the sky that we have concocted isn't real. Yahweh hears. Yahweh speaks. Yahweh hurls the wind. The idols are mute. They are deaf. They are impotent. Their fear is so great, the situation is so dire, that they're hurling cargo into the sea. Verse 5. And they do this to lighten the boat, so that it's riding higher in the water, taking on less water. In Ezekiel 27, you find a word of judgment against the famous, wealthy port city of Tyre, who did business with everyone throughout the Mediterranean, virtually. And Tyre even did business with Tarshish. In Ezekiel 27, we get some idea of what it meant for them to hurl their cargo into the sea. We read, "...the ships of Tarshish traveled for you with your merchandise, so you were filled and heavily heavily laden in the heart of the seas." Your rowers have brought you out into the high seas. The east wind has wrecked you in the heart of the seas. Your riches, your wares, your merchandise, your mariners, and your pilots, your caulkers, your dealers in merchandise, and all your men of war who are in you, with all your crew that is in your midst, sink into the heart of the seas on the day of your fall. You see, these are seasoned fishermen. They know how to deal with the sea. But this is a storm so great... That it's a choice between money and life. They sacrifice profit in hope of keeping their lives. And while these mariners show the vain and futile ways of this world, they aren't what shock us. We're not meant to shake our heads at them as we read this passage. That's not where this text is leading us to. Their actions, though sinful, don't surprise us. The surprising thing is to find Jonah asleep in the boat. Likely, he's been running on anxiety and adrenaline as he's running from God. And now he he begins to feel some ease. He goes down into the boat, and as it sets out on a calm sea, he's rocked to sleep. But what you see here, what the text is making clear, is Jonah's continued downward trajectory. In verse 3, Jonah goes down to Joppa. And verse 3 also, down into the ship. And using the same word here, we see Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship. And then a similar word is used whenever you read that he fell fast asleep. Elsewhere, this is translated deep sleep. He went down. Into this deep sleep. And this is what happens as a result. Sin endangers not only ourselves, but those with whom we have contact. You cannot sin unto yourself, you cannot keep its effects limited to a certain perimeter around you. Souls are perishing, and Jonah is sleeping. Now, this is not meant to be interpreted allegorically, but again, this is analogous to much of what we find in the church. If we haven't sinned into sleepiness, we have sinned by our sleepiness. Tragedy is all about us. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, Romans 1.18. And we who have the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek, Romans 1.16, this is the tragedy. We who have that are sleeping in our hole of perceived safety. We've been commanded to go and make disciples, and instead we're going down and into sleep. Now, in hurling the cargo, the captain finds what is to be the last thing they will hurl into the sea. Verse 6, Jonah. And speaking better than he knew, the captain comes to him and says, What do you mean, you sleeper? Which being translated into a higher key means, what are you doing? That, that's what the, the text is saying at you whenever... The captain says this, what are you doing? It's the question we've been asking since verse 3. And then his next words are a command, arise, call out. Do you hear verse 2? Where Yahweh comes to him and he says, arise, same word, call out against Nineveh. And so here he is startled out of his sleep, what are you doing? Arise. Arise. Call out. Now, his command looks back in our narrative, but the hope that he holds forward looks ahead. Hear the words of the king of Nineveh after in 3 9, having commanded the people, he commands them to call out mightily to God. He goes on to say, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from His fierce anger so that we may not perish. Here again the captain. Perhaps, who knows, the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And don't miss what's markedly absent at this point. We see the sailors calling out to their gods. Verse 4. We'll see them call out to Yahweh in verse 14. Nowhere do we see Jonah call out in chapter 1. That doesn't happen until chapter 2. These nervous semen, perhaps stereotypically, according to our perception of ancient semen, grow Nervous and superstitious at this point. Verse 7, they're reckoning that someone must be cursed and to an extent they're right. But what they likely never came to realize is that this was not a curse. This was God's severe mercy and discipline. How much more terrified would they be if they knew they were not dealing with Yahweh's wrath? but a father's discipline. If this is his discipline, what must his wrath be like? So they cast lots to find out on whose account this evil has come upon them, verse 7. And they're acting according to their pagan worldview whenever they do this. But it does remind you of an episode that happened earlier within Israel. Remember in Joshua chapter 7, you already see Israel defeating Jericho. And the next battle is Ai. And as they go to battle Ai, 36 men die. You may think, 36 men, that's a, that's a small number for such a battle. What, what's, why is Israel so upset? You see them mourning and weeping. And the reason is, this is the conquest. This is the land promised to them. Something must be wrong. And they weep before God. And God says to stop weeping because someone has sinned against him and taking what was forbidden. Everything in Jericho was to be dedicated to the Lord. And so he instructs them to take the tribes by lot, having isolated a tribe, to take the clans of that tribe by lot, having found the clan, to take the households by lot, and then to go man by man. And Achan is discovered to have stolen a garment, 200 shekels of silver and a gold bar. And though in Jonah, uh, that this act, as you see here, has no divine sanction, yet Proverbs 16.33 holds true. The law is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from Yahweh. This text is not teaching you how to solve such problems. This text is teaching you, Yahweh is sovereign. Over... Every act of chance and wickedness, he's sovereign. With the lot falling to Jonah, they barrage him with questions, verse 8. The variety of questions that they ask can confuse the modern reader. Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? But Jonah realized, as any ancient reader would, that these are all religious questions. Who He is, where He comes from, His line of occupation, would all be needed to determine what God they're dealing with according to their polytheistic worldview. You see, all our questions are religious. Not only the answers we give, but the questions we ask betray the worldview that we're looking at life with. And remember, we're always dealing with Yahweh. Our questions betray our religion. By these questions, the, the sailors are revealing their polytheistic worldview. What god are we dealing with here? They've got the world chopped up to where what ethnicity you are, what kind of line of work you are—it doesn't matter, just where you're from, because you, wherever you went in the world, they worship this pantheon of gods. And so you had to isolate it even further. What occupation? What? what give us all these scenarios. We have to eliminate by process. Uh, by this process of elimination, who, who are we dealing with in this storm? Well, Jonah answers their questions, but in a way that undercuts all their presumptions. I'm a Hebrew. This means he fears, he worships Yahweh, the God of heaven, the transcendent God, the God who is above all, who made the sea and the dry land. They're not dealing with a God. They're dealing with the God. Psalm 95, 3-5 says, Yahweh is a great God and a great king above all gods. In His hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also His. The sea is His for He made it and His hands formed the dry land. These seamen have been afraid. They were afraid a God was against them. But now, having learned something of the truth, verse 10, they are exceedingly afraid. And again, we marvel with them at Jonah's folly. What is this that you have done? How foolish to try to flee the presence of Yahweh. Yahweh the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land, the hurler of great winds, the lifter of waves. Even the pagans, having learned something, just a something of Yahweh, marvel at his folly. Not knowing Yahweh, verse 11, they turn to his prophet, his disobedient prophet, but nonetheless it's his prophet. They turn to him to learn what they should do. The sea is growing more and more tempestuous all this time. The more they learn of Yahweh, the more His power is being manifested in all of this. Jonah tells them, verse 12, to hurl Him into the sea. Though there there may not be any repentance at this point, perhaps there's an indication of remorse sorrow pity compassion of some sort that he's caused these men such trouble but i think it very likely that jonah just realizes i'm going down i stay in this boat i'm going down or i can be tossed into the sea it's not that i really care for you guys it's just so much that there's no point in everyone else going down with me i'm not that evil But do you see what God is bringing Jonah to face in this? Jonah has to deal with his calling declare Yahweh to the Gentiles for their benefit. Not only that, but to actually be the means of their salvation by means of self sacrifice. As always with the wrath or the judgment of God in the Scriptures, if there is to be salvation, there must be sacrifice. In this instance, it's the guilty being sacrificed so that the innocent might live. Still knowing this, verse 13, the seamen tried to row for land. see, the Gentiles show more concern for Jonah than Jonah did for them. Still, their efforts prove as futile as Jonah's. You cannot sail God's stormy sea. You cannot stand against His wind, even if you think your motives are good. We try to justify our disobedience, do we not? Even should you think your motives pure. So now, verse 14 Well, note this, instead of hurling Jonah into the sea, as has been revealed, they they try to row for the land. This does communicate concern, but whereas we've seen the sea growing more and more tempestuous, verse 12, this time it grows more and more tempestuous. He knows it's because of him this has come upon them. Then verse 13, um, it grows more and more tempestuous against them. Now it's against them. And so, instead of calling upon their gods at this point, these pagan sailors call upon Yahweh. They're hesitant to throw Jonah overboard. That's very wise because they don't want to presume to act as judge. They don't have any kind of authority to act in a way to take the life of another. Whenever they speak of Jonah as innocent, what they're speaking of is that they aren't in the capacity of judge. They don't have evidence. They they aren't in a position to kill this man. It's not that Jonah's innocent, it's that them taking his life, they would have no cause to do so. They don't want to presume to act as judge. Now, why would they then proceed to do so? Even though this man is one of Yahweh's prophets, because Yahweh is doing as he pleases, he's making it clear. There's no other option. He's spoken by his prophet. In Psalm 135, 6 through 7, we read, Whatever Yahweh pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps, he it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. God does whatever He pleases. He cannot be manipulated. He cannot be bent. You see, before they are wondering to know, what God are we dealing with here so that we can begin to steer Him? And at this point, they've come to this, this realization. This is Yahweh. He does as He pleases. We do not bend and steer Him. He bends men as He wills. Having so prayed, they then hurled Jonah into the sea. In verse 15, the sea ceased from its raging, and though the sea is calm now, they are still exceedingly afraid. You notice this progress of fear. They begin by being afraid of the sea and the The situation and that a God might be against them. Then they are exceedingly afraid, having learned of the truth. And now, the sea being calm, they remain exceedingly afraid. They offer sacrifice to Yahweh and vows. I believe it's going too far just on what we have here to say that they were converted. But it is not going too far at all to say that Jonah anticipates a greater prophet who will make a greater sacrifice for a greater salvation with a greater reach so that the Gentiles might know him. Does this stormy see, story, remind you of any others in the Scriptures? Perhaps you might recall Paul and how different he was from Jonah in Acts 27, where instead of fleeing a calling to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, Paul has embraced it. Where instead of being silent, he's speaking for their salvation. Where instead of a selfish withdrawal, he is serving others. And though that ship was lost, not a life was. That's not the one I'm really thinking of most, though. Thinking of that time when the one who is the hurler of great winds and the lifter of waves was himself asleep in the whole of the ship. Mark gives my favorite telling, Mark chapter 4, 36 through 41. And leaving the crowd, they took with him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose. These details are not superfluous. Why? Because something more terrifying was still with them in the boat. Yahweh, who is the hurler of winds and the lifter of waves, God the Son and flesh, was with them in the boat. They were afraid of the very same one that these ancient mariners were afraid of. The inescapable God. He is asleep, and yet his sleeping doesn't communicate a descent like Jonah's, and yet it does communicate a descent like Jonah's. It's unlike Jonah's, and that his descent is not an expression of rebellion and selfishness, but of purity and holiness and selflessness. But it's like Jonah's, and that his descent is one in a progression where he will be cast into the depths and for sin. The disciples ask him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? But do you not see that the very fact that he's sleeping communicates he cares? The eternal God, enfleshed, Expressing the weakness of our flesh in that he sleeps speaks to this he cares. He has stooped so low to take on flesh and live among us. He cares. He is not forced to the point of sacrifice whenever there are no other options. He willingly comes down, down, all the way down because he does as he pleases. It pleased him to come down. If you balk at the thought of the wrath and judgment of God, Christ executes Nothing which he has not himself borne. He stoops to be plunged into the sea, not as the guilty so that the innocent might live, but as the innocent to suffer for the guilty that they might live. Plunged into the depths of God's wrath bearing the tempest of God's righteous judgment in our place so that we might be raised out of our grave of sin and walk in resurrection life. This is the bad news. We are every one of us like everything that is bad in Jonah. And this is the good news. Everything that is even a glimmer of something good and true and beautiful in Jonah, Christ is in the full. He is in anticipation of the one who would be hurled into the heart of the earth for our sin and our salvation. Call out to Him Sinner, repent of your idols, repent of your running, repent of your suppressing the truth, and call out to Christ, God incarnate, and you will find what Jonah says at the end of his prayer that he finally prays in chapter 2 to be true, that salvation is of Yahweh. For we who have called out, who know His grace and mercy, offer up a sacrifice of prayer. Vow your body a living sacrifice unto Him and sing His praise with Jonah. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your mighty, unrelenting grace that keeps we disobedient sinners. Forgive us, have mercy on us. May we bend our knee to you as Lord, may we may we do as you will. For you do as you please. You are Lord, we are not, we are your unworthy servants. Thank you for Christ, Father who drew us near to you, we unworthy sinners, who bore your wrath in the tempest of the fury of your wrath, so that all we know now is a Father's discipline. Father, I pray for any here who are presuming that they are yours, that they will cease that folly and that they will repent and believe. In Christ's name we ask these things. Amen.